and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty, reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. If you're an engineer working to put machine learning into production, you should definitely subscribe to the Machine Learning Engineered newsletter. Every Thursday, I send out a short email featuring the five most interesting things that I've learned that week. Past issues have included links to articles, research papers, events, and videos, all curated specifically for the busy machine learning engineer who wants to become the best at what they do. To get that in your inbox, go to cu.ai slash newsletter. Again, cyou.ai slash newsletter. My guest today is the best engineering manager that I've had the pleasure of working under. After getting his master's in computer science from Georgia Tech, he held various technical roles at Yahoo and Workday. He then transitioned into management, eventually working his way up to a directorship in the machine learning org at Workday. Since then, he has recently left and is now co-founding a YC-backed startup currently in stealth mode. Hari Narayanan, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. Thanks a lot, Charlie. Thanks for having me here. The question that I always get started with our guests is, how did you first get exposed to computer science and programming? And why did you decide that was the industry that you wanted to enter? Yeah, for me, it's a slightly long journey. And thinking about it, in retrospect, it's, it seemed inevitable, but it seems inevitable. But when I started, I wanted to be a scientist, nothing to do with engineering. I just wanted to do pure science. And how that started was I used to ask a lot of questions when I was a kid. And my mom was pretty annoyed with me because I asked so many questions. My teachers were annoyed. I get thrown out of classes very frequently because of asking so many questions. As I grew a little older, they would just make me ask questions and have discussions with my teachers so that my friends and classmates can just have their own time. So that's how I grew up. And over a period of time, I realized that you need to know a lot to get to answers for a lot of these questions. And that becomes tricky. So that's when I decided, okay, yeah, what is the best way to expand my brain capacity to learn more and more? And I realized that you just need to outsource part of it to a computer. Got interested in computers at that point and then started doing my undergrad in, in computer science. 
And one of the first projects that I got exposed to there was to build an MLP. This was before the days when the term machine learning was pretty common. Or So what I did was create a simple feed-forward neural network to recognize digits. That was the first thing that I got exposed to. And ever since I've been hooked by this AI ML field. You started out at Yahoo immediately after your journey into doing that advanced degree and building that first feed-forward neural network. But this was back in a time when, like you said, machine learning wasn't really used. It certainly wasn't used in industry. So can you talk about a little bit about what, what your work entailed at that point? Sure. Yeah. So the first exposure of MLP happened in my undergrad. And after that, I was doing my PhD at Georgia Tech, which I didn't finish. I got dropped out of it. At Georgia Tech, I was mostly focused on trying to build a computer which mimics human brain. And that's when I realized that we don't know much about our human brain to build a computer which mimics human brain. And I dropped out of my PhD, moved to Bay Area, and started working with uh, Yahoo. While I was at Yahoo, I was working at a lab at Stanford, learn more about your brain so that we can build good computers to mimic your brain. And in the industry at that point, machine learning was just picking up. Big data was just picking up. And it was because of Moore's law. We didn't have enough hardware to do a lot of what we take for granted right now like 10, 15 years back. At Yahoo, we started with a lot of personalization just at that point. And I was working with the Yahoo Research Group to figure out how to best serve our customers in a personalized manner where they would be happy with the results that they get. There was not a widespread adoption of machine learning and it was just getting started. So it was good to get into the journey at the beginning instead of at a, at a point when it was too early. Even just Yahoo being able to use it for personalization that early is quite interesting. And being, I'm sure, at the very forefront of that was very exciting when you were in a, still in a technical role. But then eventually you left and decided to go into management. And this is a topic that I'm personally very interested in because when I was obviously just starting my career and for a long time was only focused on how can I get that first job in the industry? And that I had no sense of what I would do after that. And so it's something that I'm just starting to think about of, oh, do I want to stay an individual contributor for a lot longer? Or do I want to go into that management role? Or even do something completely different than that? So can you talk about a little bit of your transition of going from being a technical contributor into management? For sure. Yeah. And, and it's been an interesting journey. And first of all, it started off as an accident. One of my managers in, at Yahoo left and I had to mentor and lead a team at that point. And I was not very good at it. And I, I was just thrown into it and I was not really good at it. And I came back and I was an IC for some time. And then they had this thing where you can, if you have your own ideas, equivalent to the Google's 20% thing where I was leading a project. And in that, I had to work with a lot of different variety of people starting from data scientists to engineers to uh, product managers to sales and marketing. And I was running that team. And that was pretty interesting uh, experience to just figure out, okay, you have a goal. Let's march this group of diverse individuals to that goal. That was interesting. But still, I don't know whether that was my thing. So I joined Workday as uh, an individual contributor. And that's when I saw at Workday, the culture for management is different. They had different set of values. I had an amazing manager. So learning from all of that, I decided, okay, maybe this is a thing which I can definitely try. And But I didn't want to do it at the cost of being technical. One thing which I realized early on in my career is without being technical, you can, being specifically in the uh, AI ML space, you can be replaced at some point. And also I'm really passionate about like technology and AI and machine learning, et cetera. 
So I started off with a very small team where I could still be technical and also start managing the team and learn the aspects of being a manager. Because being a manager involves a lot of different skill sets. Part of it is technical, part of it is product, part of it is process, part of it is people. So learning all of these is pretty crucial in that. So I wanted to start off with a small team and I should be thankful to Workday because they gave me that opportunity to work with a very small team and still get this going and never look back. After that, I was, I, I like being a manager, like leading a team, like working with people. That's the most important thing. And, and I've enjoyed that career. Now I see, I look back at it and I'm grateful for that opportunity. And I'm definitely using a lot of that in my startup and relationship building here. You said that Workday has a bit different of a, a managerial culture than what you might have experienced at, at Yahoo. Can you talk a little bit about what the differences that you saw exactly were? For sure. With Workday, they have, I wouldn't say Yahoo wasn't employee-centric, they were too, but Workday emphasis a specific thing on culture. So they have important values like customer, employees, and then there are others, profitability, fun, etc. But the major values are their employees. For them, happy employees leads to happy customers, which leads to profits and business doing well. So that's something which they don't just, it's not just in their talk, but they also walk their talk. Like they literally have a lot of training for managers to make sure that you treat the employees really well and work, work around that. And that's the entire culture. And that definitely helps when you are starting there for the first time and learning from these people who have been trained, who have that right mindset. And even now, when I go outside or talk to my friends who are managers in other companies, I see there are certain differences at Workday, which is, which specifically as a manager, you learn a lot, which is good. One thing which I've realized is across the journey of uh, my career, I always go back to this, where in, at Yahoo, I, it was like a school where you learned a lot of really good technologies and really good process, et cetera, where I learned that aspect in that school. At Workday, I learned about the managerial aspects and people management. It, a school with a lot of training, a lot of really good teachers, and I learned that. And now with, with YC, I'm learning a different skill set in terms of entrepreneurship. It's like a school where you learn a lot of these different skills. So that's how I correlate each of my experience with different aspects of um, schooling. For lack of a word. Oh, that's an interesting way of segmenting your uh, career experiences. <laughs> and I'm sure when you were first in that school of learning to be a manager, that you encountered a bunch of challenges and surprises. You even said that in your first go at management, you weren't so good at it. What do you attribute to the difference between where, what do you think made you ready for trying to pursue that again compared to when you failed the first time? So one thing which is important, whether you are a manager or you are managing someone or someone is managing you, you should make sure that you set them up for success be it your higher-ups or be it your people who are reporting to you, you need to make sure whatever they are trying to do, you set them up for success as much as possible. So that was not the situation I was at in my first opportunity as manager. I didn't. I was not given the basics of, okay, you need to do these things, etc. I was okay at my job. My team loved me, but I know I could have done better. Whereas with Workday, I was set up right. where I, It started small so that I could learn, not like, I can leverage my technical and product skills and then build on to the people skills a little bit more. So I was given that opportunity to learn and grow, which was, which was really good. But there are a lot of technical challenges. And I would say there are lots of 
not just challenges, things you need to learn and grow for you to be successful for, for being a manager. First of all, the first thing which I would say is it takes time. There is no one who's a born manager. You, you can be a good manager through good experiences. So it's important to put yourself in places where it's slightly out of your comfort zone, slightly above your capabilities so that you stretch and do well in that. And that's how you get to experience sites which you haven't before. And that's, how, that's where most of the learning happens. And that was true for me across the board where there were these skills, oh, technical skills, product skills. Oh, yeah, these are something which I know. Okay, let me stretch a little bit to understand other aspects of people's skills. And you learn and grow. And it, it it's a little bit of, it comes with experience. No matter how many books you read, it's not going to help you with that immediately. Though books are helpful to provide a guiding um, direction, it's important for you to actually experience it. And that's how you can get better. Mm-hmm. To dig into a little bit more of that experiential knowledge that you've accumulated, what were some of those like biggest surprises and challenges that you encountered when you were first going down that journey of not the first time, but the second time when you were able to be successful at it? Yeah. So the way I would think about it is being a people manager, you have to work with a lot of politics and a lot of people problems. Many cases, I might be stating the obvious for people who are in the know, but many cases we imagine that life as a manager is pretty straightforward compared to as an IC, because that's how I was imagining it when I was a, when I was a principal engineer. But then later, as you dig into this, you realize that people problems are much, much harder compared to technical problems. They have a closed loop. You can figure out, you can get feedback. It makes it easier. And it's rational. People problems are usually not rational and it makes it very hard for you to get through all that and learn. And I know even now there are there might be managers who don't worry about people problems as much. And, and there are still ICs think that, oh, their managers are not doing good. There's a lot of diversity here and the problems are slightly different across the board. But what I would suggest here, what I learned is people problems are much harder compared to technical problems. So unless you experience some of those tricky situations, you wouldn't learn uh, about how to handle that the next time or how to handle something like that in the next time. And this is where you also need really good mentors which I was very fortunate for to have really good mentors at Workday. And that is something Workday is good at. They deal with different people, have the right kind of mentors, have the right kind of culture where they don't set you up for failure. They help you succeed and which was really helpful in the situation. What do you think makes some a manager effective in their handling of some of those more, like you said, irrational and not te- non-technical people problems? Yeah, for sure. It's a really good question, right? You're essentially asking what makes an effective manager. So the way I think about it is, first of all, you need to treat people who you are working with as people and not resources or not direct reports or not managers or not necessarily people who like who you just utilize for something and uh, throw them away. You need to treat them as people and respect them for who they are which also means that you need to understand their strengths, their weaknesses, their interests, what their family background is, so that you can align their goals with the business and company goals. That way they succeed and business also succeed because if they succeed, the business succeeds. And that's how you need to align and work with them, which also means that you need to um, unblock them, make sure that you empower and enable them, remove any obstacles so that they can march towards their goals. And it's up to you to figure out that their goals are aligned with the business goals so that if they achieve their goals, business achieves their, uh, achieves their goals. So that's a major thing that you need to do. And then outside of that, you should always be, this is something which I tell my team, that you should always 
assign yourself to this theory of growth mindset. Like no one is fixed at that level. You need to keep thinking about how you can grow and how you can improve every single time. And if you have that mindset, you'll be very receptive to feedback. And I would put myself in the first glance with any of my direct reports or my organization in general. I would just let them know that, hey, if there's something which I'm doing wrong, please be uh, candid about passing on feedback. And I would be very receptive to it and I would show that. And I would also reciprocate the same. That way, you need to create that environment of transparency and openness. And that way, you understand what where you are doing wrong so that you can be better. And similarly, where they are doing wrong and people can do be, be better in general, that helps the organization as a whole be good at what they are doing. So um, listening and receiving feedback and giving feedback at the right time, having that uh, mindset of growth is super important. And finally, I would also do this, that when things go wrong, you should step up as a manager and take the blame. I wouldn't say blame, but try to uh, be there for the team. And when things go right, actually give credit to people who deserve that instead of like hogging all the limelight. So these are important things that the team, you might think don't they don't notice, but they notice a lot of these really well. And this is how you can definitely get better at being a good manager. That last one, especially, I really want to highlight because I, I really think you did a really great job of doing that. Can't go into too much detail here, but I, re- I do remember the one project that was going a little bit wrong and you were always very quick to stand in front of the team and provide a unified front instead of pat- maybe passing that on. And then when it was able to work in the end, you were very good about specifically calling those people out who did a really great job and stepped up. For sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. And also in addition to that, these are other aspects which I hope everyone as a manager does. It's like being a good mentor, being a good coach for your team so that you point them in the aspiring, inspiring goal direction, but you also in every step of the way, guide them towards that so that they can achieve that. And other thing is you need to balance multiple different hats, which is one thing which I realized that being a manager gets you to. So I was always not a pure individual contributor who was just technical because I was always interested in business. I was not just interested about what you're trying to solve or how you're trying to solve it, but why are you trying to solve it? What is the business context around it? What does the customer want? That was that has been my thing since I was a kid. I used to ask a lot of why questions, which is annoying after like you go five levels deep. Apparently there's a five why paradigm. And here that is that becomes important because it's important for you to not just understand the technology, which again, your team needs help with. So you need to know about it and mentor. But at the same time, you need to know about the product. You need to know about the process and the business. And you also need to know about people in general and get the right connections for different people so that they can do uh, their job their best. So uh, it, it's the same theory that I, I subscribe to as Workday, where if you have happy employees, you have happy customers. I feel if you have a happy team, they will definitely produce the results and like it, everyone would be happy that way. And you need to enable them and empower them to make those decisions, which will lead them to being successful in their goals, which will eventually lead to business goals as well. And being that you were in some ways a specialist in the data realm, machine learning realm, even before it was necessarily called that, what differences have, and, and of course, we're still very early on in the figuring out all the best practices for doing all those things in a big organization, where do you think the biggest difference lies in managing a machine learning team versus a traditional software team? That, that's an interesting question because we have different job titles for individual contributors. We have software engineers, we have data scientists, we have product managers, we have DevOps. 
and we have DevOps managers, but we don't necessarily have machine learning managers per se, like people who understand machine learning and managing people in that space, like it's engineering managers. And sometimes many organizations have seen throw people who are like engineering managers who have driven a lot of software engineering into teams which need to manage machine learning. And that hasn't been always successful because you need to understand the domain. In, in this case, the domain is machine learning for you to guide and mentor the people properly. And what I mean by that is some of these problems need a specific set of directions specifically related to machine learning that as we all know, most of your listeners are also machine learning folks that machine learning is not always successful. And we know that and we need to be patient with, with that because you might have solved a different problem which the users are not looking for. It's a it's an iteration thing. But, but the main difference which I see is as a software project, you have a deadline and you need to meet that deadline. And if you're building a platform or a system, you know what is step A, step B, step C, or you can know what is the last step. And you can go back from there and get to exactly what you need to do and can plan much more um, accurately and then get to that. You have a definitive plan and definitive deadline. Whereas with machine learning, it's slightly tricky because it's probabilistic. I mean, that's the point of machine learning. So you might, yeah, you might have all the right set of data and everything else, but still you might have not thought about something else which might screw up the probabilities. Having exactly definitive and deterministic timeline might not work many times and you need to work with your team to understand those aspects and call out those risks very early to your stakeholders so that they understand that that this might happen at this point but there's a probability of this not happening because of how machine learning works and getting that communication is of utmost importance and that is one thing which i would stress not just for machine learning managers but for anyone who is working in this space that not a lot of people understand probability that well and it's up to us to communicate and educate people that way so that they understand this aspects, uh, these aspects of a machine learning project. And that's the only way that we can get to wide adoption of machine learning in like traditional spaces, which hasn't seen a lot of machine learning. That last part on communication, I think, is really, like you said, it can't be stressed more. More importantly, it was one of the things that surprised me most about going and working in a full-time role where as an intern, you're insulated from everyone else in uh, in the organization. So you're given a project, and you, of course, you have you can give your feedback on the project, but it's you're not really talking to people outside of the team for the most part. And when I go into the, that full time role, I really took for granted that, like you said, not everyone understands probability. And so when you tell someone that, oh, the precision is this, but like we have to get the AUC, the, the blah blah blah, it, it just sounds like gibberish to them and there's no possible way that they can make a, an effective decision off of any of that information absolutely and this is one thing which to your pre previous question which is also important here which is what makes an effective manager one of the effective qualities is of course knowing people if people you will be empathetic of their situation and you'll be able to solve it in whatever way it's not always solving it it's just listening to them and being empathetic and that is true even here in terms of machine learning because one thing which I learned in my career was it's not just, you won't always just work with engineers or uh, product managers or people who are like techies, for lack of better words. You many times work with privacy lawyers, you work with marketing specialists, you work with sales. And some of these folks are not necessarily traditional, come from traditional technology background. So which means you need to explain it to them, which resonates with them. And most of your customers will be that. They might not understand UEC, ROC, or they might not understand like precision recall, even false positives and false negatives sometimes becomes tricky. So you need to explain it to them that they understand better. And this is one place where 
I like to quote one of my one of the authors or one of the scientists who was a childhood hero for me, Richard Feynman. And he used to tell this even from an early age that I started um, reading his books was if you read a concept and if you're able to explain it to a five-year-old, if you're able to teach it to someone, which means you have done it really well. And for that to happen, you need to go down to the basics that you understand that really well. And that is important for a machine learning manager to do really good that job. You need to understand these so that you can explain it to stakeholders who might not be coming from the same background, but they understand and resonate them with the value of what you're providing. So that's important in terms of communication. Yeah, being able to explain something to, like you said, to a child, to a five-year-old, extremely simple is, especially in machine learning, where it gets very complicated, it's we're ever striving to be able to explain things more simply. It's a, it's a hard skill to have. And that's the reason I, I couldn't stress more on communication. And it's a skill which I'm not the best at. And I don't know if you would be best at it. You would be the best at some point. You, it's, there's always a continuous improve, improving process and you should just strive to keep on improving in that space. It's quite hard to even think about how you improve at that skill in general. Of course, there's, there's books like nonviolent communication, but that's not really like on technical things. That's probably more on the, like the soft side dealing with people. I don't really know if I know of any resources about like explaining technical subjects. It, it comes with experience. People. I mean, again, it's not a very interesting answer. There's no a, a magic pill which you can take to suddenly become better at that. It just comes with experience. I mean, if you keep trying, that's what I do. I try to explain some of these to my mom, some of these to my daughter, and uh, she's three years old. Of course, she's not going to understand a lot of these. <laughs> but if I'm able to abstract it out in such a way that I can explain it with her blocks somehow and say that, okay, this is what you mean by false positive. This is what you mean by false negative, etc. Try to get it to that level and try to classify. I mean, having a three-year-old is, a, is, is an interesting place to be in because you see how they learn. And sometimes when I, when she was like uh, one year or a little less than that, she was playing out with a, a red ball and I intentionally left a tomato there. And then wanted to see which one she picks, whether she has a classification algorithm. And the thing with child is, I mean, they, humans in general, is they pick up things really quick. And she was able to do that. So I <laughs> experiment with my child a little bit around, around these areas. But what I'm trying to get at is over a period of time, if you try to explain it to these folks, I think it becomes much, much better um, for you. Otherwise, if you're not able to explain it at that level, you don't understand it fully. So go ahead and try to understand it more so that you can explain it better. So that's how you should think of that. I can't remember who put this in my head at first, but it's regarding reading research papers. And at every single point after you read a sentence, you're like, do I, you look away from the page and you think, oh, can I actually regurgitate this? Do I actually understand what's going on? It's so easy to get, get lost in a paper at the very end. And you think, wow, I actually have no idea what's going on, what, the, what was happening in the rest of this. So it's uh, yeah, not just for explaining things to other people, but also just explaining it to yourself is very helpful. I mean, you see the other way you learn for some of these is you see really people who are good at it and try to mimic them in some ways or try to follow them in some ways. There are really good leaders who are able to explain things in a simple way, right? I mean, be it science, because science also has a lot of concepts which are pretty hard, though Richard Feynman was really good at doing that. So see how he does that. And in the machine learning sphere, I definitely see Andrew Ng doing that in a pretty good fashion where he's able to abstract it out in a very simple way. So follow people who you think, who you are able to understand it from pretty well and try to mimic that or abstract it out in the concept that you want to explain and see how that works. And again, it comes with experience. It's a trial and error thing. Everything, in, this is something which I realized 
at Yahoo as well as everything in this world is associated with A-B testing. You try certain things and see which one sticks and uh, that, that's a yeah, that's how that's a good way to experiment with stuff and get to things. To start to maybe close out the the section on management and transitioning from me and IC, what would you and we already covered a little bit of this before, but what we what do you think was the most helpful advice that was given to you or the best resources that you might pass on to someone who's considering it? Yeah, so I think we have touched a lot on this in this conversation up until now, but if you want to close it out, one thing which I would definitely say is we should all have our own set of values, be it integrity, be it like employees and team or fun or whatnot. Come up with a set of values for you, which you subscribe to, and then try to make sure that you have the right set of people and mentors so that you validate those values and try to push the team towards that. Essentially, the best way for you to be a good manager is to stretch yourself out of your comfort zone, as I was saying. Stretch a little bit. If you stretch too much, you're going to fail. If you don't, then you will just be staying in your comfort zone and you'll just be complacent. If you stretch a little bit out, then you will start learning through those situations, through those things. And those would be definitely effective for wherever you are. And of course, there are books out there, right? I mean, there's Radical Candor, there's a trillion dollar, trillion dollar coach, Good to Great, Multipliers. I can I can think of a lot of books which I read. First 90 Days. I mean, there, there were lots of these books which I started off with. And I don't know whether everyone will have time to go through the entire book across the board. In some of these books, you can just do a Blinkist or a whatever, what are the other apps we can use to just read a summary. And that will still give you a sense of uh, the direction to go towards. Having the right kind of mentors, having the uh, situations which are slightly outside your comfort zone and listening to people and treating them as people and genuinely knowing them as person, as people would be the three things which I would say if you want to do it well. I think that was a really great summary of, uh, of a lot of what we've just been talking about for the past half hour or so. So to move on to one of the next topics that I really wanted to discuss with you, you at Workday had played a major part in how the organization thought about hiring people for machine learning. I know that we went over a, not a big change, but back before when everything was a data scientist. I remember my first internship was a data science internship, and then later it morphed into a machine learning engineering internship. So can you talk about the, I guess, the transition from uh, how the organization thought about hiring people for those types of roles? Yeah, this has been a shift, not just at Workday, but in, in, in the industry as a whole, we used to have specialist data scientist roles. I mean, when I joined workforce, I was a data scientist. And that's what you were called, though you have your training in software engineering, etc. So data scientists are of two different breeds, I would say. One is more of from a software engineering background, where you know how to code, how to program, how to do all that. And you also know how to play with data. The other group is more of like pure data scientists who are like, come from diverse backgrounds. They could be from neuroscience, they could be from psychology, they could from, be from the cognitive science, statistics, biomedical. I've seen people from all this, even geospatial engineering, who are, who have, have played with a lot of data. They come into this field and they analyze data. They are, but they do that in R and MATLAB. They understand statistics and how data works with each other, but it's hard for them to take that concept, which they have done in R or MATLAB, and then make it something which users can also see. So what we realized at Workday was initially we were hiring a lot of data scientists who were like really good with R and coming up with these data models. 
just that will not be sufficient for our customers to see the value of the research that we are doing here. That's the reason we wanted to not just change the mindset of people, but also have the right kind of people who can not just convert the problems that users are facing to the specific solutions or play around with the right kind of data to get to the specific solutions, but also deploy all of that in into a production scale so that users can actually see it. The way I would see it is as a machine learning engineer, you are part data scientist, you're a part software engineer, and you definitely need to understand product and the business domain a little bit. And you should be good at communication as we already discussed. And there are other skills which are equally good for any type of engineer, be it communication, collaboration, being customer-centric. So these are things which are given. But then the things which are important here is specifically around engineering plus data science put together with an MLE. I can already hear a lot of people in the audience. They're saying, oh man, I have to know a lot of things about data science and about software engineering. Of course, these are both quite rigorous fields uh, that aren't that easy to just get started in. How do you view the the broadness of the role in general? Do you think it's going to stay that way? Do you think it's going to, how would someone approach pursuing it as a career? Yeah. So there are, this is one thing with as a trend that we are noticing now, right? So one thing which I feel is machine learning is going to get commoditized a lot, which means the value for machine learning research will be with a few set of companies and how you use the algorithms and the research that everyone has done or you are doing to specific problems that you're trying to solve is how you add value to our customers and to the world in general. So it's mostly moving towards applied machine learning is what I see, which means there are certain aspects of software engineering, which also you need to know. There are certain aspects of machine learning which you need to know. You don't have to know every single thing that software engineering has to offer or machine learning has to offer to be a good MLE. It's about willing to learn. Of course, as we stressed earlier, growth mindset is something which we need to have, which means you need to keep continuously improving and learning across all these. But for you to get into this field, try to get a project and get it done end-to-end. Because if it's end-to-end, you need to first understand the requirements from the customers or who, whatever problem you're trying to solve, try to understand the problem really well, try to understand what the potential options are for solutions, look for data, play around with data, clean up the data, come up with the models, write the right kind of models, figure out the right kind of metrics for those models, and then try to take it to a place where someone else can use it. Instead of you just using it in your terminal and saying that, hey, yeah, this works great, try to open it up and try to open it up for someone else to try and do it. That second aspect of taking this model and putting it into a different place and trying to scale it or trying to deploy it elsewhere will give you that experience which is needed for you to be a good MLE. I like that advice a lot, the end-to-endness of making these projects instead of just stopping at the model, which is what I was guilty of for sure. I remember a situation where I was taking one of the, I was, tr- I was actually trying to possibly start make a startup out of this where it was basketball analytics since I had found a really good way to model basketball games in real time. And I was showing it to one of my friends who was potentially interested in it. And of course, this was a like lots of text on the interface and you had to type in things and and then press the right things in the right order. And he just started looking at it. And as I'd read like one of the manuals of don't tell them what to do, just watch them use it. And I was amazed at just how much knowledge was required to use this thing. And it goes into... You just realize when you try and do these projects end to end, there's so much more than just the technical aspect of it. There's also the design. There's also the, like the UX. You have what you're saying is what I would call entrepreneurship mindset, 
because you try to understand about the customers, you try to understand the problem, you try to understand the process, you try to understand the technical aspects that are needed or the technology that is needed. And you also try to see how to deploy, how to scale. And there are other aspects of it, which you need to know. I mean, I, this also reminds me of one thing, which like Andrew Ng said in one of the, one of the conversations or in one of the uh, videos, he was saying, bridging the gap between a proof of concept to uh, an actual product is one of the biggest challenges that AI faces at this point. And specifically, it is important in enterprise where there's a growing need for AI. And if we want a growing adoption of AI, it's not just the proof of concepts which will solve it anymore. How do you take that proof of concept and make it a production-ready, enterprise-ready product for others to use? That challenge of scaling it from this to this is what, from a POC to this, an actual product is what is actually needed. You were a director in the machine learning org, and you had a pretty good eye on how the organization as a whole was starting to adopt machine learning and drive some of those results for our customers. What do you think is some of the mistakes that maybe the organization made as they were trying to go from that POC into actually bringing it to customers? Yeah, at Workday, we made a lot of mistakes. This is one of the things which I would say for adoption of machine learning in an organization, there are certain things that have to go. And one of it is you should be okay with failure because at an enterprise scale, you cannot expect that you try to do machine learning for the first time and it's completely a grand success. There will be some aspects which might not work well. And it, it takes time. It's the same thing. You need iteration and you need to get the right kind of feedback. But how quickly you move from making a mistake and into doing the right things defines you. It's not just being stuck with a mistake or being in the fear of making a mistake, not doing anything. It's, it's okay. It's not... It's almost like the Facebook principle of move fast and break things. It's okay to break things once in a while, but it's about how you quickly fix that, address that and own up to it and then move along. So here at Workday, what we did was we had a separate DevOps team, which was working with us, but instead of, like, it was always, okay, we have this, we'll throw it to you. Now you go and deploy. So they have no idea what was going on in the models and what is needed. And then they would deploy it in certain places. And then we'll realize that the users don't use it the same way and we need to, work on it and we don't get the right kind of feedback, which means permission learning feedback is of, of utmost importance. And if we don't have any feedback, there's no way we can improve our models in any which way. So these are the things which we realized early on and we started like over-indexing on that as well. So we were not doing any of this and then we suddenly moved to the <laughs> other side where we wanted to do a lot of this properly, where we went ahead and wanted to build a platform which did all of this without realizing what actually machine learning engineers want or what actually users want. And then finally, we struck the balance. We landed somewhere in between where we have some certain features to track the feedback and track the model performance and whatever you want to call MLOps nowadays. It's a new term. And I think MLOps itself is a subset of this field called model ops. MLOps is just machine learning. Model ops is across models, across like even outside of machine learning, I would say. All those aspects are definitely important. Figure out which one is important for your use case and for your customer base. Because in many cases, some of these will be super valuable for the models that you're deploying. And there are other things which are more like a multivitamin and not an aspirin. And figure out what are your aspirins and build for those instead of building for the nice to have the multivitamins. And that's how our journey was. We initially didn't do much of these. We were like, okay, let's just give it to customers. And then we realized that without knowing what the customers are doing or any of that, we cannot build really great machine learning products. We're indexed went in a different direction, built a platform without uh, not a lot of users. 
So that became tricky. So finally, we came in the, in the middle. We arrived somewhere in the middle and decided to do it in a way where we understand certain aspects of feedback. We track all that with respect to ML ops. But at the same time, we are not just building a platform. We are building an end product, which people can use. Yeah, it's that's such an interesting answer because I've been in the organization through like various parts of the life cycle. And it's, it is funny to see the, because I definitely remember the handoffs to to a separate, entirely separate organization to put a model into production. And predictably, I guess it it didn't end up going that well. And then when I would come back later, then it, like you said, it was like all the way on one side where it's, yeah, just make this the platform and I'm like, the platform will take care of it. And then now we, like you said, are in a perhaps more of a balanced situation of not being at either of those two extremes. And in, in retrospect, all of this seems... I'm quite sure a bunch of your audience uh, will understand this in a way that, hey, all of this seems obvious. Why did you, <laughs> like most of my answers at this point would seem obvious is what I would think. Because in retrospect, it feels pretty obvious across all these. But then once you're in the middle of it, and specifically when you think about like 2015, 2016-ish, when we didn't have the concept of MLOps, we didn't have a lot of what we are talking about right now. That's the reason we had to move one side or the other. The last two to three years, we have been pretty stable in terms of how our organizations um, are and the main reason for that is technology itself has improved and our thought process and we have made a bunch of mistakes to come to a place where we know that okay this is obvious it, it, it's interesting across the board things have changed we didn't have kubernetes we didn't have docker we didn't have all of these a few years back where we were trying to deploy these models or even uh, for training etc AWS didn't have these many capabilities or gcp didn't have these many capabilities or azure didn't have a bunch of these so it's now it seems obvious, but a few years back it was not. And I'm glad that Workday as a company has come to that state where it's about customer delivery and customer value now, and where they're in a state where you can easily scale and get to that. Zooming back in to outside of the, we were talking more about organizations as a whole and how they can provide value for the customers with machine learning. But to go back to maybe the career framework of a machine learning engineer. Of course, now we're talking about they have to have some aspects of the data science, some aspects of the software engineering, and be able to do that all end to end. What are the like? What would be some of the skills in, say, software engineering that wouldn't that would be especially valuable, or, or on the flip side, are not that valuable and wouldn't need to be focused on? Yeah, one thing which I would say on the software engineering side, which would be super valuable for data scientists, and I would say not just data scientists, but in general for everyone is to think about scale. Like earlier, it used to be, don't worry about scale, don't worry about scale. Right now, it's about performance and scale, which becomes important, specifically when you're running a machine learning model and when it has to be real time and runtime, you need to think about how you're going to scale and everything that comes with it, like best practices, monitoring, logging, all those aspects become crucial for uh, someone to understand so that you can, like, even if you are built the best model possible, which has like, hypothetically 99% precision and our precision recall across the board, you have 99% accuracy and it's doing really well in all your metrics that you want. But if the users are not able to use it, there's no point in having that good an algorithm and uh, users are not going to wait for it because in this day and age, time is money and time is everything. So it has to do well and it has to do it fast as well. How do you scale it? How do you work on it so that specifically at a scale of workday, it becomes crucial for us to do that. So balancing out the accuracy for performance is something which we need to think about and we need to act on that because as in many cases, getting to 80% in terms of development is 
pretty straightforward. Getting to 99% accuracy or 98% accuracy, that 17, 18% of how you can improve your accuracy is going to take a lot of time to build, first of all. And that might be the place where you'll have performance bottlenecks, et cetera. So understanding these and working through that also becomes crucial. And also understanding where you're going to run this, how you're going to run this, understanding aspects of DevOps, for lack of better words, the infrastructure pieces. Knowing that helps data centers better models. So these are the two skills which I would definitely say is important, which is one is understanding the scalability performance aspect. The second one is more about the infrastructure and where it will be deployed so that you understand what is happening. And the other skill, which is outside of the software engineer and data science per se, but I would say it's required for both is I mean, something which I personally believe in is the business sense, the product mindset, being customer centric, having the right mindset for understanding the product. I, mean, I, would, I would also say, go back to our entrepreneurship mindset where you have to be, you have to hustle. You need to know how to solve certain problems, which means you need to understand the business aspect. You need to understand the domain a little bit. So getting all of that is going to be crucial for you to be successful in this role. And it's, it's required at some level and it's also very interesting. Once you get into it, you will want to learn not just the data science aspect. You will definitely want to do systems and you need to wa- want to do the product. But if you try to like bucket someone only in one area, that's when it can get boring. So you should find the right kind of balance between all these areas, like being getting the right exposure to product, getting the right exposure to systems and engineering and getting the right exposure to uh, machine learning and models. So getting all that in the right balance would be the... Um, right way to go about this. I think the role is being that it is so multidisciplinary, generalized right now. For someone like me, I that's one of my favorite things about the job where it you are sometimes in that stage of helping to do applied research where you're reading papers and trying to figure out how you can model this specific problem. And then maybe a month later, you are working with DevOps to stand up something in, in Kubernetes and trying to, like you said, get that scale and it's, I like it a lot. And I think it is such interesting work to be able to switch between all the, a bunch of those different contexts. And when you bring up the, like the, those two technical skills, the scaling and experimentation. Experiment. Yeah. And the experimentation, it's, it's funny because you never, those are things that you really don't ever end up learning in school. And in some cases that's, that is what probably makes them more of those valuable skills to need to go into the real world. I just remember one time when we were trying to scale something, we were running it on multiple threads and it was, it didn't, maybe didn't have the best monitoring solution set up in it. And when, of course, your course, you're trying to debug something that is multi-threaded, it is extremely difficult if you, if you don't have some of that embedded into the, into those monitoring practices. And I just remember thinking, wow, I really never learned anything about how to do this. And you just have to go up to your mentors, to other people on the team, and learn from their tacit knowledge, their experience of having had to deal with those things. As you rightly pointed out in one of the earlier conversations, you said the end-to-endness of this thing as an experience would be valuable. And that is what I feel would, like experiencing that multiple times, some of these will become second nature. And that becomes crucial for us where you understand certain aspects about data and modeling and then like customer aspects and then scaling and then deployment. So these are different fields. And there's a reason why there are different departments in many companies where there are pure data analysts, there are pure product managers, there are pure DevOps, and there are pure software engineers. But the challenge is MLE is a unicorn role where you're trying to do 
a little bit of all of these and the reasoning why we as in workday moved at that point to uh, moving towards in that direction is we don't want to necessarily spend a lot of cycles just on research because machine learning research is endless you can keep doing that i remember when we were there we used to read like two papers just in the small realm of ml bias and nlp like at least 10 papers a week so think about that i mean with that scale you cannot keep up with the research and you can just keep doing research but what our customers want is not necessarily research it's more about them having to use this so it's applied machine learning and as an mle you can navigate towards that oh yeah this is cool let me use that for this problem which i see fit that this solution will be useful for and why are we solving this problem let's talk to the customers and let's get to that and then finally let's deploy that and see how customers use it and then keep monitoring it like it's about experimentation it's about feedback it's about monitoring and making sure that it's not it they're not they are using it the way that they should be using it if they are not what did we design wrong or what did we do wrong that they are not doing that i mean customers are always right that's how you should think about it and then go in that direction and try to build that so it's a, it's an important skill you had laid out the career framework for the mle and made it explicit in in workday in the hiring practices so if someone is trying to get hired as a machine learning engineer i'm sure they're curious as to what it looks like on the other side of the table so what are the principal things that you would look for in someone who's being hired for that role as we discuss some of the things which we were talking about right now so someone of course it's an mle role so you should know machine learning you cannot be a pure software engineer and try to say or try to get into this space you need to understand at least reasonable aspects of machine learning and you cannot be a pure data scientist and try to get into this role either you need to know aspects of taking this project and getting into production you need to know about that as well so what we look for are people who are like self starters who have that entrepreneurship mindset and people who are willing to say i don't know and are willing to learn about that and having that not just saying that but also doing that or having shown experiences of doing that would be super valuable and that's what we look for when we hire interns that's what we do as well we give them projects which are slightly out of their comfort zone which they might not know but how much are they willing to learn and grow in that space and not just grow in only one area of just data science but try to push them towards areas even in systems and engineering which they don't know so if we see those things in the project and in the interview then it would be a good hire for us and like across there were like seven or eight different skills which we ideally look for people with experience with machine learning with deep learning with nlp like you can just break it down into multiple subsets the reinforcement learning what not and on the system side people who are who are really good understand scaling and systems reasonably well and people who have that product mindset business mindset that aspect is also important but we also look for other skills which are crucial to be successful in an organization more like communication collaboration how well do they work with the team so we also look for these aspects so it's about hard core uh, machine learning skills understanding systems really well how good are they uh communicating and collaborating and genuinely nice people is what we look for at workday to get a lot of that machine learning experience of course there's a lot of different ways people can go about it I did do a normal undergrad at college in cs but the almost all of my machine learning knowledge was self-taught and of course i know we have, i have multiple colleagues who are all who also mostly self-taught it themselves how do you think the that the hires that end up being made split across the line of being purely self-taught versus maybe having gotten that masters and done the formal education in machine learning and how you think about the difference between them so i went through the formal route right i was i did my masters in machine learning and i was doing my phd and i dropped out of it 
So <clears throat> what I see is important as someone who has experience doing something end to end. It doesn't matter whether you do it at school or you do it outside. If you are able to do it end to end and with the way we were talking that machine learning is going to be commoditized, doing it end to end is more important for being a machine learning engineer. If I'm looking for a pure data scientist role with hardcore research and NLP, which someone has to do, I'm definitely going to look for a formal education there. Someone who has gone through and understands all aspects of math behind it and is really good at differential calculus and like all the aspects, right? So that that is something which I look at that point if I'm looking for a researcher. For an MLE who is going to take these models, which are in many cases pre-built, and you might have to fine-tune it or retrain it a little bit to get to what you want. You need to understand what the metrics are and how the model is built, but you don't necessarily have to have all the basics in coming up with a similarish model. Like you don't have to come up with a new GANs to solve some of the problems that we are doing. So that's how I look for or what I look for in people in general to focus in a place where they have really good machine learning skills. And if they are self-taught, that's great. Like if they are going to, coming through school, that's also good as long as any everyone has like an end-to-end -end experience and sh has shown that also, I think that will be a good place to get into it. And again, it's just more emphasizing of the end of having to be end to end and of doing those projects. And the good thing is earlier, people always think about, hey, I have to work in a job to do something end to end. And for me to get into that job, I need to have something end to end. So it's a chicken and egg problem. And which one is going to go first? If I do a job, then probably I'll have some end to end experience. But for me to get into the job, I need that end to end. What I would suggest is there are lots of resources out there. There's Kaggle, there's just go take up one of those competitions and try to crack it end to end or lots of tutorials out there and like a bunch of these assignments, which are real world assignments, try to do that in a real world outside of your work or outside of your school, uh, wherever it might be. Once you do that, then you re you gain real world experience, which is what machine learning managers look for in general, or machine learning directors look for in general. So I think we've covered this advice for people who are looking to get hired in, as an MLE pretty thoroughly. And to move on to, I want to move on to more of, you'd said that ML was getting more commoditized in general. And that, of course, we know many more organizations and enterprises are starting to adopt machine learning. So I'm going to start with a broad question. Where do you think that machine learning can really add the most value in, in an enterprise, be it at a like a large one like Workday over at smaller companies? Yeah, I mean, in general, where machine learning can add value in industry, we are, we are definitely far away from AGI. Like, so we shouldn't be afraid of machine learning taking over our jobs. Like that, that shouldn't be of a concern immediately. It might be at some point in the future. And honestly, where I think AI or machine learning is going to help is I see it as large-scale automation. Even as humans, if you have to do certain things over and over again, we get bored after a while. And this is where machines are really good at. And if machines can learn how we are doing it and what we are doing, maybe they can definitely help us do those mundane things where we can focus on like some higher levels of thought process, higher levels of tasks which need uh, thought process better, which machines cannot do, like creativity, being creative, being thoughtful, being imaginative. Those are things machines are not yet good at. So uh, not it as good as human across uh, humans across the board. So maybe those are the things which machines can open up in some ways. Machine learning can open up for humans to drive. Artificial intelligence is going in the direction of augmented intelligence. 
where we are helping humans be a better version of themselves by giving them more time to do more uh, thoughtful, imaginative, uh, creative things. And let missions take care of all the mundane things, which like we get bored with after a while anyways. I think more and more people are starting to realize that. it's uh, It's been funny to see the the general public's reaction to something like GPT-3, where, of course, you you give it some text and it can generate really good versions of that text and even go as far as to say, write, some, write articles that humans can't distinguish. And I saw a particularly alarming post, I think, I don't remember what news organization, but they were like, is this the end of journalism as we know is the end of, of all these different jobs in that, that GPT-3 is just going to take out? And... And then people actually start to work with GPT-3 and they realize, yeah, a lot of these examples are just cherry-picked and you can't actually just let it loose on a problem and then use the output directly. And instead, people end up using it more in, like you're saying, to augment someone's current uh, intelligence where they are taking it, the output of GPT-3, maybe they have it as with a few different sampling methods, like three to five, and then if they're, say, writing a headline or something, picking the best one from that and then tweaking it themselves. It's more of a creativity enhancer instead of just completely taking away the initiative from the human. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, that This is something which I've heard from my friends who are in the healthcare space and other spaces as well, where they are trying to utilize the technology of like AI and machine learning to help with doctors. But many of the doctors and others, they feel that, hey, yeah, is this going to replace me? Because they don't understand the entire aspect. And I don't think it's that's the case. There are aspects... I mean, I, at this point, I'm not also saying that every job, the way it is right now, is how it's going to be in 10 years from now. Definitely not. AI is going to take over some of the jobs. And there's no question about that. There are some basic jobs which will be replaced by AI for sure. Having said that, that is where we need to reskill those employees into areas which might be beneficial for human race and for themselves as well. And some of these jobs are not the best ut- utilization of human beings' capacity or capabilities. And that's where we need to figure out how to reskill them into those areas so that these mundane tasks are taken over by AI. And taking your example of GPT-3, it's, it's, it is a fascinating uh, development in AI. It's one step, it's taking us one step closer to AGI, but still definitely not there. And there's still a lot more work to do. And the way it's progressing, yeah, it, it will be good to have something like that. I'm I, I like technology and I'm looking forward and excited by this and not necessarily scared by that. I'm guessing it's the same thing for you too. Of course, you are now taking your knowledge of the having a broader view of the industry. And I, I know that this is something that you had talked about wanting to do for a long time, but now you are starting a doing going off on your own and starting your own startup. And you've gotten into YC and are starting to go through that program. And of course, being that we're during a pandemic and everything, it's not maybe the same YC as as everyone is used to in the past, but can you talk about a little bit of your experience of going through that program so far? I know that, of course, you're stealth, so you can't get into all the details. Yeah, there are a few things which I can definitely talk about as part of YCs. It's also pretty early. We have been, what, three three weeks in into the YC's winter batch, so there's a lot more still I, I would continue learning from them. But one thing which I've realized is the network and the your partners just having to work with them that way has been fantastic because these partners have seen 20,000 companies, 30,000 companies each. So even though they might not be able to point you, okay, do this and you'll be successful, they can definitely point you to saying, don't do this, you'll be a failure if you do this because they have seen so many companies and so many 
failures that they know what are the patterns that you notice in uh, when the company fails so they can definitely help you with that the other thing that also uh, we have noticed as part of uh, yc is the network like people are extremely helpful because all of you are solving similarish problems right you're trying to build a company and which means you need to understand now there's a technology aspect but also sales marketing and other fields and not everyone is really good at uh, across all these so you try to build uh, your muscles across these and leverage each other for help wherever you want and having that peer group in some way that you have someone to talk to when you are running to some problem maybe they had gone through that last week or maybe they will go through that next week so that way you would be able to balance it out and having that kind of peer network helps you motivate yourself and go also in the in the right direction instead of just you being by yourself and trying to do it by yourself these are some benefits of yc maybe at at some point in the future we can talk about all the experiences in detail but i'd like to conclude that by saying that it's been a fantastic experience up until now it is interesting like you're saying about how they have seen so many different companies by now and not all of them succeed and uh, and you take the lessons from there and you update your own neural network in your head having seen these and can pass that on to companies and he's like yeah. literally so that's literally how how it go, goes you i i'm quite sure they would have talked to brian chesky from airbnb saying that do this and you'll be successful they would have told him that don't do this if you do this you'll be a failure about certain aspects in his business and that's how it goes and that's the other thing you also learn from these people who have gone through hardships and different journeys they are right there and they would be explaining to you how they did it and what they did it even if you are not learning anything from that it's extremely inspiring but it's not just that you learn a lot from these things that they are saying because you see how the problem was and how they it's about grit and everything else leaving alone the technic technology aspects and how people can go through that it's extremely we of course wish you the best of luck in uh, trying to get this off of the ground of course it's not an easy thing although yc does uh, make it a little bit easier appreciate it thank you and to start to conclude the interview i always ask guests the same rapid fire questions so the first of which is what do you normally do for fun outside of work yeah so i'm a pretty outdoorsy person so i play I used to play semi professional cricket back in india so i continue playing cricket a little bit i also like science as i told you earlier that's how it was in my childhood so i try to partake in like science activities around there's a group called bay area science and i'm, I'm part of that and like we just go to astronomy sometimes or try to go dig in uh, and try to find something there or we go to the shore and try to find do microbiologists a little bit and, and we just try to do across all of this in science and i also have a 3 year old so there's not a lot of free time at this point to do a lot of these things specifically in the pandemic so i take care of her and work with her and experiment with her try to do certain things and see uh, how her brain learns across all these intentionally try to make certain things different differently it's been fun that way seeing other humans grow up that you can learn a lot about how you grew up and how this field of machine learning or artificial <laughs> intelligence can grow so it's been fascinating they don't need a lot of examples which is like which is one thing which i don't know how it's going to change for ai ml but just seeing three or two or five samples they are able to come up with conclusions like human beings are really good at that whereas in computers we need hundreds of millions of data points sometimes for uh, computers to understand that i think that's a space where things will change as we move to the future i was just reading like a research paper about exactly few shot learning for image classification 
and they were trying to do a uh, recognize a dog from a different point of view. And it was uh, a huge breakthrough that they were able to do it after just looking at another picture of the same dog with a point cloud. <laughs> and uh, whereas a human, of course, like a baby sees a dog and they're like, they have no issue seeing. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was reading a paper this morning as well where they were talking about something similar where in, in uh, one shot learning for some of these images, they had trained this algorithm on a lot of trees and scenery and stuff like that. And then they tried to show a tree like from from a vantage point of being under the tree. And all the algorithms broke because they didn't they haven't seen in this angle when you're looking at landscapes. But I'm quite sure a, a human being, after seeing a few of these, they can, yeah, this looks like a tree. So how do they do that? These are the fascinating aspects which I was grappling through in my PhD. How does your brain work the way it does so that we can mimic a human brain to build a computer? But yeah, it's a hard problem and it's a fun problem to solve. It just makes being in the field even that much more exciting because you think how far we've come so far with GPT-3, ridiculous breakthrough, and yet we still can't recognize a tree from underneath it. <laughs> so the next question here is, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? So recently I've been recommending a lot of business books because I'm trying to build a business. So I'm reading through a lot of business books. So as I told you, I'm, I'm passionate about science, business. These are two areas which I uh, read books on. And the third one is more about like, me being in this field. I want to tune my algorithm to get to the, I mean, my thinking models and tuning my mental models to be a better version of myself. So those are around like productivity, self-reflection, et cetera. So some of the books on the business side that I've recommended to others, of course, Crossing the Chasm is one, zero to one fantastic lean startup is fantastic hard thing about hard things is fantastic and there are a lot of these business books which are really good on the science side i recommend sapiens uh that's that's been really good a brief history of nearly everything by bill bryson that's also been really good also try to read anything related to neuroscience slash ai like on intelligence was good anything from ray Kurzweil is is, is fantastic and in AI-related books for business leaders, I would, I would recommend Prediction Missions, which is one which uh, Workday also recommended to a lot of people. So that's that's a really good book. And I mean, this is where I was saying you cannot always try to read through all of these books. I mean, some of these are audiobooks, and I also use Blinkist and Headway a little bit to get summary and then figure out if the summary makes sense and go deep dive into some book. So that's another suggestion which I would make to uh, people in general. Great. Well, I'll have a link to try and have a link to as many of those as I can in the description if people want to check them out. And the next rapid fire question is uh, something that we pretty already touched on, but maybe you can uh, take it from another angle. What advice would you give to someone just starting out in, we'll say, entrepreneurship, since that's what you've been delving into recently? Yeah, I would say one thing is go build things. There's nothing. It's the same exact same advice which I would give in material of whether. AI, machine learning, or engineering, or even entrepreneurship, just go try it out. For entrepreneurship, though, the one thing which I would differentiate is, which comes from my experience as uh, being a manager. So I never treated my manager as a manager or treated my direct reports as like, oh, people who are reporting to me. I always treat them as people. And now I can see that having done that, I can reach out to them for help right now because they are happy to help. And similarly, if they need something, they are reaching out to me for help, which has been fantastic because you get to learn in different aspects and you also get to give it back at some level. And that's something which as an entrepreneur, it's important to cultivate these really good relationships. And because you would need that when you're alone in your journey, when you have to talk to customers, when you have to talk to 
like other entrepreneurs, investors, you need to know how to treat them as people and then get the best insights out of them. That's a good skill to have in general, good, good aspects of networking, I would suggest. What have you recently changed your mind on? <laughs> That's actually a really good question because I keep changing my mind on a lot of different things. So, <laughs> so what, one thing which I realized recently is we, uh, it's about data, right? So we always think data is of utmost importance for any company. Like without data, you cannot survive and data is of utmost importance and you build a data mode, et cetera. One thing which I'm starting to realize and starting to change that, that is we are giving too much importance to data. I mean, this might be slightly controversial, but what I feel here is in the next few years with advancements in like stuff like GPT-3 or GANs and other things, you will be able to generate good quality data, like good quality, real looking fake data. If you're able to do that, the data moat literally goes away. At that point, it's all about first mover advantage and how effective are you in like building whatever you are trying to do. What is your that will be much more of importance rather than just the data mode. And that's something which I'm recent, recently thinking that data mode is important at this point, but soon with the advancements in synthetic algorithms, it might go away. The other thing which I've also realized recently is if its data is important in a different sphere, which is data that you put into your body. Uh, what I mean by that is what do you consume? What do you eat? Who do you talk to? What is a what are the different media sources that you consume information from? These are all the data that goes into you continuously to define or like you, you fine-tune your mental models using that. You fine-tune your algorithms using that, which means how do you do all that? If you put in junk, you're going to get outside like data also pretty bad. So junk in, junk out. That, that's literally how it is for algorithms. And think of you as an algorithm and that is true for you. Like eat healthy and consume the right kind of media and figure out, fine-tune your models to get the right thing for you, be it food, be it media, be it conversations, be it friends, be it books. If you fine-tune yourself, then it gets better. So data is supreme important. It's definitely important in that space. I think a lot more people have started to realize that. I know I did. Uh, I started to realize that much more with being in quarantine and you aren't able to maybe go out as much and do the things you normally would. And it's really easy to just get stuck into the loop of watching the news, especially early on in the pandemic. You're just watching the numbers endlessly, refreshing uh, worldometer and seeing the number tick up. And eventually you just realize you really need to stop and just go back to, to, like you said, doing Zoom calls with friends or going and reading something and eating healthy and exercising and stuff like that instead of just... Think of it as data that goes into you. And so this is something which I, which kind of ins I got inspired from this book called Algorithms to Live By. It's also a really good book. I highly recommend that. And in that, they talk about multiple algorithms. The way I position that is, okay, think of you and your mental models as different algorithms. How do you fine-tune that to get better? That's what we do by continuously learning and improving. If that is true for your mind, that is also true for your body. That is true for everything. So it's about food. It's about conversations. It's about what you consume as media. It's all of that becomes super crucial at that point. And worrying about data there is super important because no matter how many synthetic algorithms come in, it cannot simulate real looking fake data for you to consume. Whereas on the enterprise side or anywhere else, the data advantage that companies talk about right now is going to like, go away soon. That's super interesting to think about too. Uh, and I had started to dive into some of this research on synthetic data. And I was trying to get, uh, wanted to get someone on the podcast to talk about synthetic data. And it's funny because 
I thought, oh, surely there can't be that many synthetic data startups. I'll just like, go and find the guy who's doing it and uh, interview him. And it turns out that there's at least 20 and I have a huge list of them and I haven't reached out to any of them just because there are so many. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was not that big an area two years back when I got interested in it. And in the yeah. last two years, there've been so many companies trying to do that because this is, I mean, there's this thing called Synthetic Data Vault, which is part of MIT and Harvard collaboration. You should probably talk to someone from there. I would be interested in that podcast episode because that's, they are just creating a vault of different data sets where people can go and add in. And I, I, I presume it's a compounding effect as well. In a few years, you'll have a lot of different data sets, which might be really valuable for people to work on. And the, the other thing, which on a slightly different note, which I'm also, which I changed my mind in the last, whatever, three, four years is data bias is true. And it's, it's important for us to think about because before that, as data scientists, we were like, yeah, data bias ethics, it's not, yeah, we, we didn't have the right kind of mindset, like I would say 10 years back, but now yeah. we have seen the real uh, effects of how data can go bad and how models can go bad because data is bad, et cetera. Thinking about bias and ethics is an important thing for anyone to do when they are in this field as well. So that's another place where I've changed my mind, not recently, but a few years back when we started seeing real-time implications of these. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree with more with that more. <laughs> and lastly, which is apropos, given your mention of the book Zero to One, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a pretty tricky question because... Earlier, when I started with data bias, not a lot of people agreed with me on at that point. Or even now, when I was talking about the synthetic data, not a lot of people necessarily see it that way. The other thing which I also noticed is ML is being commoditized. And that's something when I say most of the machine learning engineers or people like me who have been trained on machine learning, they tend to like, hey, no, no, that's not true. Because it's the same fear that others have. If it's being commoditized, what will I do at some yeah. level? What, what One thing is like applied ML is much more... It is the way to go because you take these core machine learning concepts and try to solve problems which are like real world applications for users. Instead of coming up with newer algorithms every single day, we have a lot of really good algorithms. There is deep learning, there's reinforcement learning, there's this, there's that. Try to use all of this in real world practical examples or practical problems that people are facing and see if we can make their lives slightly better. Even if we are able to do that, will be super impactful. And that is where I think uh, we should be moving towards it doesn't mean that don't do research. There are certain people and certain companies which are going to do research, but many others should just focus on using that research, stand on top of those giants and try to solve it, solve real world problems for users. And that is going to be super valuable and impactful for not just us or this generation, but even generations to follow. Well, that is a very inspiring message. And again, something that I totally agree with and is completely in line with the overall message of this podcast. So can't think of a better place to end it there. So thank you so much for joining me. This was a great conversation. Thanks a lot for having me here. It's been fantastic answering all these questions. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com.
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. 